Well, it is season two. We are on episode 11 and I'm excited. I'm excited to bring you season two. It's going to be an exciting new episode. That's got, do you know what? Everything's just exciting. I hate it when people say the word excited. It actually does drive me nuts because you hear it all the time. Oh, I'm excited about this. I'm excited about this, but I am really excited. So yeah, I'm excited to bring you our first guest today, who is Mark LaRousse. For anyone who doesn't know him, you need to go and check him out. Mark is the founder and host of The Unconventionalist. He is on a mission to help mission-driven entrepreneurs and business leads have a bigger impact on the world with their message. Um, he's worked as a country manager for the Movember Foundation, where he helped raise $2.8 for men's health. But since then, he has worked with great brands such as Google, Samsung, YouTube. I mean, I could go on. I won't because we are only at the introduction here. But if you haven't seen them, you must check out his TEDx talks. They are fantastic. I I mentioned it in the podcast, but I was only going to have a couple of minutes watch of his TEDx talks, but I got hooked. So go to the show notes after you've listened to the podcast and check it out. It is fantastic. The TEDx talk that I watched was what they don't tell you about entrepreneurship. It is brilliant. And I am so excited. I'm excited again to be delivering this podcast of our conversation between myself and Mark LaRousse. You are listening to the So Driven Podcast with me, your host, Serena Dodd. Each week, we will dive deep into the inner workings of leaders. We will talk about their story, their challenges, their triumphs, and ultimately what drives that quest for success. Wanting to listen to a corporate type of approach to leadership? I'm afraid you're in the wrong place. Here, we like to be raw, a bit silly, progressive, and 100% unconventional. Mark LaRousse, welcome. I mean, I'm so excited to have you on the first episode of the second series. Woo! You are the guy that got me into podcasting. Welcome. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. And honestly, I, I, I've got to say, congrats. It looks epic. Sounds epic. Season two, you know, how many episodes are you now? Season one was 10 episodes. This, is, this will be the 11th episode. 11th episode, that's it. Yeah. Thanks. Virtual, virtual applause. <laughs> so how are you doing? I know that you're getting right back into the rhythm of it, yeah. but did you manage to have some time off in August? Yeah, no. So I mean, um, so I, I don't know if, you, if you've got kids or not, if you're in that family kind of scenario, but I've got two young kids and, uh, you know, it's really funny. I had some mates who were living their best, you know, quarantine life and they were kind of getting suntans and working out and getting abs. And they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I thought you definitely don't have kids. We have two young kids. We had a, a toddler and a newborn. Um, so we navigated that. So that was intense. Like, I'm not going to lie. Some of the most challenging months, you know, my partner and I kind of navigating that. So I, I've been really, I took almost like a kind of paternity, like a second paternity leave for three months where I just decided, look, there's no point trying to do everything. So I took June, July and August off. And I came back in September and this is my official second week. I started last week. Yeah, this is my second week back at work. And it feels good to be <laughs> back at work. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I was, someone was, I think there was, uh, I'm in a space, in the co-working space here. And I think someone joked about, um, oh, do you miss, do you miss being back at home? And he's like, no, no, I'm so glad. I'm so grateful to be here. So we took some holiday, managed to take some time off social media, emails, WhatsApp, all that stuff. But really glad to be back, actually, because it's it's been kind of picked up. I think a lot of people are using this time uh, during kind of this uncertain, weird period of time to kind of, 
okay, who am I? What am I about? What do I want to go out there? And, and how do I start communicating virtually? Because at this stage, this is this is how we're all kind of connecting. So yeah, good times. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I know a lot of people are going back to work and seeing it more as a holiday. <laughs> yes. And it's not yeah. necessarily being away from the family, but the chaos of... yes. Uh, for such well, a long time you know, you know my, my mother-in-law came you know and thank god she came for two weeks and she's amazing i'm very lucky to have a mother-in-law who i actually love and and get along very well and uh, she actually is one of the only people who read my newsletter in my family and actually responds to it so big shout out to her and um and she was kind of saying why do you think this is so exhausting because i find kids right like leading because we're in this podcast about leadership like leading children i find that way more exhausting than than you know, running a business and or leading a team or, or what have you. And I was trying to think about it, like, what is it? And it's the mental load of it. And it's the constant negotiation. It's like you're dealing with terrorists on a constant basis. <laughs> and all you're doing all day long is just negotiating everything. Like, you know, put your shoes on if you, know, if you don't do this. And it just, it, it just drains you. Like yeah. it just and that favorite question, why? Why? Yeah, why? Why? And so eventually I actually go, so why do you think? I just that's, that's my that's my go-to question is like what so what why do you think we've we've gone seven layers down this why is the post gray so let's go into why do you think anyway that's a very good comeback it's lazy it's such a lazy comeback but I just thought that's it at least after that she kind of goes oh maybe you know she kind of thinks about it <laughs> look for all my listeners out there who aren't familiar with your work would you mind just explaining what it yeah. is that you do yeah so it's um so it's one of these things where I, I, I was quite fortunate um, to have been raised by a mum who was an English teacher and used to put on school plays. And uh, as kids, she had to do something with my brother and I to keep us entertained while she was doing rehearsals. And so I was like cast as like the bush, right? Like the tree bush in the back or the puppet, that you know, for ventriloquists. And um, and so I've been on stage, like I've been in, in, in kind of the limelight since I'm a young kid and loved it. My brother, opposite, hates it, doesn't really like it. I was just like duck to water. And my entire life, I just thought that everyone was like that. I just thought that everybody loves to be on stage and to speak on stage. And and uh, although I had difficult uh, education because I'm dyslexic and I grew up in France and it's like archaic and mean and medieval. Um, and uh, But stage was always the place that I felt at home. And then uh, something happened. I um, I always had a crazy dream, which was to, to, to become, a, to do, not, not to become, a, to do a stand-up comedy gig. And I was terrified. And so this is weird because anyone who knows me, like, like right now you can tell me, oh, Mark, I've got a thousand people, audience, my speakers just drop. Can you come and fill up the gap and just chat? But like, yeah, no problem. Um, but public speaking terrified me. And all the anxiety and the, 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 the insecurities and the fears and everything that I experienced going through that process of, because I forgot to say that my, my, my wife signed me up for my birthday as a surprise and she gave me this gift in front of all my mates. She's like, surprise, you're doing a stand-up gig in eight weeks, right? <laughs> um, and I, I honestly, I, I've never been so afraid. And she said to me, it's like, now for the first time, you understand how people feel about public speaking. And I thought, oh my God, that's how people feel? That's awful. And so I kind of decided that I wanted to help. Um, I think my, my particular magical work is when I work with what I call performing introverts or situational extroverts uh, who have an important message or mission that they want to share with the world, whether that's their business or, or, or a cause they believe in. And they know they should be in the spotlight, but hate the idea of being in the spotlight. And I basically help them fall in love with that. I help them fall in love with how can you broadcast your message in a way that feels good to you, 
you know, whether that's a podcast with, you know, such as, such as yourself, or whether it's a YouTube channel or blogging, you know, whatever it is, we need to get you out there. And, and the big fundamental shift, I think that this is one of the big mindset shift is um, I try and change people's perspective of that. It's not about you. It's about the people you're trying to serve, but more practically people who know they should be in the spotlight, hate the idea of being in the spotlight, and even more so hate the idea of being the kind of person who wants to be in the spotlight, right? And so the yeah. idea is, it's not about being in the spotlight, it's about becoming the spotlight, right? So as soon as you understand that it's not about you and making it all about you, but about this thing you believe in, this cause you see, this future you want us all to strive for, this purpose, whatever it is, it becomes so much easier. And so that's what I do. And I do that through running an impact accelerator where I run these thought leaders through this process and we take the offline expertise into online thought leadership. You make it sound so simple. <laughs> so straightforward. <laughs> but, but it is because it's so much fun. So I love it. <laughs> you did a TEDx talk in Cardiff. It was a really good introduction. I mean, you know, you could tell that you were born for the stage, but you could tell that the way that you were delivering that was mm. your purpose. It was, mm. it was something that had clearly driven you to... Mm get to a point where you were inspiring others. It was sort of emanating off you on, on stage. Can I say a quick story about that? Just yes. Really, you know, just really quick story about TEDx. Um, so uh, this is something that a lot of people know about this, but effectively when I was asked to come and give a TEDx talk in, in Cardiff, I, I found out in December and the talk was in April, I think. And those were like five agonizing months, right? Because I had all these sort of insecurities coming about who am I to do this, even though I, you know, I, I'd been in one of my dreams to give a TEDx talk, right? Um, and so I, I originally had a very different talk. <laughs> the talk I had was something like, what you seek is clarity, but what you need is trust. Like that was kind of the talk. I started talking about three-headed dragons and I had like all this stuff. And, um, and I prepared that for about four months, right? Up until just before April, I think around April. And one of the challenges I had was I'm going to deliver this talk to one uh, friend a day for I think it was like 10 days or 14 days on the lead up to the TEDx talk so I could practice it and get some feedback and, and improve it right and um, and get to see friends I hadn't seen in a while and I start doing this and I start every time I tell my talk I feel a little bit more die like I, I feel a little more dead inside it just it, I didn't feel it people were kind of like yeah I mean it's so you know it's good and what I don't like and everybody had different opinions and feedback and I kept on questioning it and eventually, um, 10 days out before the actual event, I had fully practiced this, known the talk. I'm about to deliver it to, to a mate. And I said, um, I'm not really feeling this. And I give and I give the talk. And at the end of them, I said, look, this is what I would, this is what I would really love. This, this is this other talk I've got in mind, but I haven't really done it. And I start talking about the truth of entrepreneurship. I basically talk about how I'm tired of seeing all these online um, personifications of entrepreneurship being glamorous and amazing and all this stuff. It's hard. It's super tough. I mean, blah, 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 blah. And at the end he goes, that's the talk. That, that's the talk you need to do. And I had 10 days to basically prepare this talk. And so I prepare this talk and I, I've got to give a shout out to Amri Shah, a friend, a friend of mine. Uh, I give him the, the, the second version of the talk and he goes, it's a little, can I be honest? You go, you go, I go, yeah, it's, it's a little bit boring. It's not, it's not that there's a part of it that's missing. Like there's a part of it that's a little bit more fun, a bit more quirky, a bit more, because he saw me at uni before my last school play, right? So he's like, you've got a part of it that's not being shown. And he helped me shape the first bit where I basically do a satire of entrepreneurship. Now, for anybody listening to this, if you go and watch it, you need to understand this very carefully. I had tried that first bit of my talk maybe four or five times before the actual TEDx event. No one laughed it bombed every time. Like I would be like this caricature and everybody was like, okay. And so when I, before I got on stage, I was super nervous the night before I was stressing out. 
and, and, and my partner ripped the notes out of my hands and she says, you know the talk, stop trying to learn the words for word. Connect to what you're trying to say, connect to the audience. I was like, you shouldn't be fucking coaching. Um, <laughs> this is public speaking. And um, uh, anyway, so I, I get on stage, I take my first few steps and I say my first few words and I'll let everybody listening go and watch it to see what happens next. But it was a massive surprise. The reaction was such a relief and a surprise. Hey, sorry, oh. I interrupted you, but I just wanted to... No, that's fine. That's totally fine. I started to watch it thinking I'll just watch a couple of minutes. I was hooked. <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> obviously there live as an audience member, people were mm. engaged, but it came across definitely mm. on the screen. But yeah, it was just very interesting and clearly someone who is sort of a leader in what they believe in, which mm. is driving people to their purpose. But you wrote a book mm. called it's not you, it's me. But you talk about, you know, your corporate life story and yeah. your lead to burnout and then going on to entrepreneurship. What do you find is sort of lacking in the corporate world that is creating mm. this burnout? Oh, well, so I did it. So I, I, a lot of part of my work that I've done over the years is actually working in organizations with leaders and, and, um, and companies. And what, what, I, what I found was, you know, where there are people, there is pain. And, and where there's pain, there is actually hope. And it doesn't matter. I worked in the corporate sector, the non-for-profit sector, charity sector, and the educational sector, right? And um, it didn't matter where it was. It didn't matter what kind of organization it was. I always found myself in, in, in questionable, sometimes management, or sometimes just situations where people didn't feel like they were being seen, heard, appreciated, or supported. And, and, and I kind of started to realize, like, why is this such a, a gap between our, our aspirations to be a better manager, better leaders, and then the reality of the day-to-day -day and then sometimes falling short of that. And, and I think there's a couple of things, right? So when, I, when I've worked with organizations and I've found really high-performing cultures and high-performing teams, one of the common uh, threads I found in them was uh, employees and team members would say, like almost verbatim in different shapes and forms, but they'd say, I don't need to check myself out when I come to work. I don't need to wear a mask when, when I show up to work. And um and that's actually backed up by a study from Google uh, called Aristotle Project, which effectively tried to see what were the low and high performing teams had in common. And the number one factor they found between them was psychological safety. Now, psychological safety, and they, they mapped out five main things, right? But psychological safety came on top. Psychological safety is the ability to be in an environment where it's okay to fail. It's okay to raise your hand and not know. It's okay to say, I need help. It's okay to, 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 to basically speak up without any fear of repercussions or, or humiliation or retaliation, right? And, um, and I've, I've, this is a true story. I, I ran a workshop in an organization, a very well-known kind of international organization. And um, the leader took me aside just before the workshop and kind of said, what, what are you gonna do in this? in this workshop with, with our people. I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm here to just to make sure that everyone can get behind, you know, common purpose, have, have feeling that like they belong and, and get excited about the, you know, a future worth striving for. And uh, she said, great. Cause I was afraid you're going to get to talk to them about their feelings and we just don't have time for that. And, and I laugh, right. And I, often when I, I used to tell the story on stage and people, they, I'd get the same reaction in the audience. And I always said, but I realized two things. One, number one, it's really easy for me to judge. Like it's really easy for me to judge and say, that's such a terrible thing to say. But actually, point number two is it's super vulnerable to be leaders. And I think we don't talk about that enough. I don't, I think most leaders I've worked with and, and coached, and most of them would say they felt like they've been thrown in the deep end. You, you know, there's one thing about being really good at your job, it's a whole different ballgame being good at managing people and 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 coaching and leading people. 
and and sometimes some very functional high functioning people feel like they just don't have the cross-functional management skills yet and and there's a, a big gap and that goes into what people call soft skills i just call them human skills um you know compassion empathy uh, curiosity patience all these kind of things right and and so a lot of them feel alone and it's interesting because i remember speaking to this leader who just been given like one of the top jobs in in the country um in a company and i was like so how do you feel and and, and again she said I feel I've got really big shoes to fill and, uh, and I don't know if I, if I have what, I, what it takes. And in that moment, I felt more connected to that leader than probably anybody in that organization because there's this um, almost unspoken agreement that we have to be a certain type in order to be, you know, credible, professional, um, whatever it is in front of the teams. And we've got to hide. And look, there's, 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 a, there's, there's an element that you don't want to go in every day and say you're panicked and you don't know what you're going to do with the organization because it's going to create chaos in the organization. But you can say, look, you've got this huge challenge. I don't know, you know, how we're going to get there. I know we're going to get there. I don't know how, but I believe we've got the right team in place to get there and I'm going to need your help to figure this out, right? Like the, the, I feel like there's this fear in organizations of, of, of being ourselves, right? Like that, and I, and I always say being yourself is good for business. I've learned that from my 140 plus episodes on the Unconventionalist podcast around, you know, artists, entrepreneurs, um, politicians, journalists, authors, athletes, all this stuff. And you can see it, stand-up comedians, rock stars um, have one thing in common. It's we love those who are being themselves, no matter how, you know, polarizing or, you know, they are, that we, we really appreciate that. So and that was a very long-winded answer. And there's a thousand things I could say, but that's probably one of the main things I see. What was your personal experience? Did you leave the corporate world sort of understanding that there was purpose that was needed in your life and yeah. there was a lack of purpose and that's what led to the burnout? Yeah, no, and, and so just really quick, one thing I do, I do think that most organizations lack of is a clear sense of purpose and that they don't, they don't know how yet to connect their employees' work to meaning. And, and like I, I, I started a kind of a side project called Ministry of Purpose and that's Make Work Matter. It was to help organizations figure out how can we, because it's not complicated. You, you don't have to have some, some life-changing purpose to, to make your work matter. You can actually align yourself with the 17 UN Sustainable Goals, which give you a clear path on what problems you can get behind to solve. So anyway, that's one thing. The corporate world, yeah, I was, um, I didn't know these words back then, right? So I know you're into coaching, so you'll know words like values and and uh, and things like that. But I, I didn't know what that I didn't know that I was a young kid, right? I graduated three days after graduating. I started my corporate career, and I'm and I'm and I'm and I'm catapulted in Lithuania, and I spent a, a couple of years working and living in emerging markets. So Lithuania, Kazakhstan, South Africa, Bahrain, Peru, etc. You may you name it, and um, and and I'm there, and I. And I don't understand quite why something feels off, right? Like I don't, I don't understand why there's something that's not quite right. And and the organizations I work, worked for um, had very questionable ethics. That's the only way I could put it. Um, were were really focused on sales, sales, and 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 rewarded results over behavior. Okay, so if you were a key salesperson in that organization and you sold, you could get away with pretty much murder. Right. It didn't matter if you were an absolute a-hole to your team, if you bullied or, or, or just morally abused your staff and your team. It didn't matter because you were one of the key performers. And so I understood what meritocracy culture looked like, which is basically as long as you perform, you're great. But when you're not, you're, you're down below and, and you can fluctuate. Right. Um, and so so I kind of was looking around going, this isn't right. Like just to give an example, what we did was was selling advertorials. So basically we'd go into organizations, governments, um, huge organizations, and we'd speak to the CEOs, chairman, presidents, ministers of organizations and governments, 
and we'd get them really excited about the project to profile the country in a positive light into this Western media, like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, whatever. And uh, But for that, we're going to have to sell some huge advertising spaces to sponsor it, to finance it, right? So we were selling ads and editorial boxes. And I was in uh, Bahrain and uh, sold, you know, sold, some, sold some contracts, got some, got some stuff, and then was moved on to the next project. And I kept on going, hey, is, is Bahrain being published? Like, is, when is the report coming out? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, it's coming, it's coming out. Like a year later, like they've cashed in the money and it still hasn't been printed. And this was a bit of a notorious thing in the industry around like you sometimes it'd take two years to publish. And I just wasn't okay with it. And I remember having an argument with the sales director. He said, look, Mark, you're focusing on the wrong objective here. You should be focusing on your sales numbers for this. I was in the Gambia back then. Um, instead of focusing on what's happening in, 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 uh, in Cyprus. And, uh, and I just thought that this isn't right. This isn't right. Like we're, we're going in these meetings, making believe people that we're going to be publishing articles in the Wall Street Journal, but really we're selling them advertising. And there was a massive dissonance in, in how it felt. And I'm just, I'm simplifying, right? But like, there were so many different things like that. And eventually I thought, screw this. This is, this is not who I want. And it was amazing. And I loved it. And I learned so much. Like it was one of the best experiences of my life. It still is to this day. It's like no MBA in the world could have replaced this experience of living in all these countries and building teams and, you know, generating $700,000 of revenue a year. And it was, it was amazing. But, uh, but I left there really feeling a bit shattered and broken because you go from being this um, country director managing, I was 24, I think, what was I, 24, 25. And I was managing teams, right. Who were older than me and uh, living the high life. I had a chauffeur, I had a cook at home. We lived in stupid accommodation with like tennis courts and swimming pools and 300 square meter flats in Cyprus with, with a barbecue size for a dinosaur. It was just so mad. Telescopic staircase. I had a remote control for the staircase to come down. Anyway, so <laughs> I lived all that life. Right. And I still deeply felt unfulfilled. I remember my parents, my, my dad never went to university. My mom, you know, was a teacher for 35 years. They came to visit me in Cyprus and they saw my lifestyle and they couldn't believe it. You know, I had a chauffeur, um, I had this massive flat and they were just going, oh my God, this is the life. And, and I was like, actually, I'm really unhappy. <laughs> like, and, and that's when I realized, and Jim Carrey says this and it's horrible because I know that it's so easy because I've experienced it. It's easy for me. I went the, I went the opposite. I went from like riches to rag and then had to rebuild myself. I didn't go to rag <laughs> to riches, right? I started off pretty high in my career and then just went downhill until <laughs> I went back up. But, um, but it really was kind of saying, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't how if, if you don't have a deep sense of meaning and purpose and belonging and contribution, it's really difficult to actually get excited, you know, on, on an average daily basis, you're not going to feel like that every day anyway. But, um, but yeah, so I left, I left burn. That's why when I was called back to go and do work in organizations as a speaker, I was really reluctant because I thought there's no way this is, you know, I don't believe in, in the system. It's broken and it's really difficult and blah, blah, blah. And I kept on, I spent a couple of years coaching people who were unfulfilled professionals looking to transition to become entrepreneurs. And, but I was at the bottom of the hole, right? I, I kept on, I wasn't fixing the problem. I was kind of trying to do my best, limit, limit the damage and, and um, turns out the organizations who generally do care and they're trying and, and they're struggling and it's hard and there's the aspiration and then there's the day-to-day short-term, you know, goals. They've got KPIs, they've got P&Ls. To, you know, there's, there's lots of realities of a business that makes it difficult to, to juggle. Yeah. And what I've often found working in large corporate organizations is that you will often find someone come in, a you know, really strong professional with, with a really great credentials, um, a heavy hitter, and they come in. They're placed in a senior role to help 
create a more productive team, a harmonious environment. And these guys have great ideas and great ambition and clearly some great experience. But I would see it time and time again that the pressure from above with these certain types of large organisations, you know, like as you said, with KPIs and budgets would more than often or more often than not deflate their enthusiasm, shut down their creativity and within a couple of months, you know, sort of end up like the rest of the team. They'll end up working to survive and not thrive. The passion completely gets sapped out of them. So, you know, to change one person's mindset is hard and requires time, but to change a whole culture, you really need to be extremely radical. You have more of a chance reaching someone if you are being invited in to talk, A, because they're paying you money to do so, yeah. and yeah. B, because you are then spreading the word on a more public level to the company yeah. to say, you know what? This is how you create purpose in your business. Yes, and the risk and the risk is so it's 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 much minor. When when you're an external consultant coming in, you 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 know I don't look. I tell them straight like uh, at the start of the the relationship when I used to do that kind of work, you know I'd say um, how committed are you to this to this process of change, and what are you willing to to do and and to be with because um, I'm gonna I'm, we're gonna speak uncomfortable truths and we're gonna talk about things that's happening because what would happen all the time. It's because my TEDx talk basically was this amazing lead generator. People kept on getting in touch with me after seeing my talks. Like, can you come and talk about meaning and purpose at work in an organization and especially around millennials and stuff? And uh, I'd say, cool. So I'd go in there. And, and this this is one specific example. So I've got this really great organization. They bring me in and they go, um, cool. So here are like the three biggest challenges we have, right? So it was something like, uh, I don't know, uh, productivity, um, uh, meaning, purpose, direction, something like that. And, and they start going, yeah, you know, what, what people really need is some help on you know how to make better use of the time and be more productive and blah 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 and i'm not a productivity guru in any kind of way so i told them it's like that's not really my thing but i'll investigate and part of my um contract when i when i go and and, and why i command the fees I, I i kind of command is because i go look i'm going to do some research and and that's going to be conducting conversations and interviews with different members of your organization so from really junior staff to senior members and across the board. And, and I need to get a sense for what's real. And that's been like the best gift in what I've done because there's a difference between what HR directors, CEOs and leaders might tell you the organization's about. And the really, the really pioneering leaders are those who say, I've got a blind spot. I don't know what it is. And I need to come and help me see it. Right, like though, though they're rare. Those who are able to say, something's not quite right. I don't know what it is, but I know that there's something and can you try and come and help out? And so I'd go there, I'd have these conversations. And very quickly you realize there's a common theme that's happening in all the conversations and it has nothing to do with that main reason why they brought you in, which is i.e. productivity, right? So I went back to them and I said, look, you know, you said you wanted me to come talk productivity. Like, I'll take your money if you want to give me your money and I will talk about productivity, but here's what's going to happen. Three months from now, nothing's going to change. And six months from now, you're going to be annoyed. And when we have the conversation to check in and see how you're doing, you're going to say, look, nothing, nothing, nothing happened. And you're going to blame me. And that's fine. Or here's what's really happening. People are afraid because they feel like you're not communicating to them anymore. They're not, they're, not, they're uncertain about the future if you're going to go for a merger and acquisition and get bought out. Um, they feel like all the little things that made them special at the start are no longer present. Like all these little things are changing. They're, they're seeing the culture change. How about we talk about scaling caring? How do we scale a caring culture when you go from a startup mentality to suddenly, a, you know, a large organization? And it took a little bit of conversation and convincing and they, they, they trusted me and, and it paid off because when, when I did, when I, we did the session, um, 
it was very well received because it, 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 I came in because I remember, I don't know about you, but I remember being working in organizations and you'd, you'd have consultants or speakers come in and they'd tell you their seven steps to whatever it is, right? That Whatever the, the expertise they had. And I'd sit there going like, mate, you have no idea about, organizations. you have no idea about what's happening here. And we're not a, a cookie cutter, you know, culture, whatever. Whereas I find that my promise to myself was if I ever did this kind of work, I want to have a minimum, and you can't after like just six hours of conversation, right? but a minimum of understanding of what's happening so I can relate to people. Like just, I'm going to finish with an example because I, I go on for too long, but um, I, break, I get brought in for this, this kind of tech, tech startup that raised quite a lot of capital, right? And so they were growing quite fast. And, um, you know, talking about how to find meaning and purpose in your work and how you don't need to become an entrepreneur to find a reason to wake up in the morning. You can, you know, do entrepreneurship and all this kind of stuff. And so I get there. And I'd been told, like, one of the issues was around management leadership and, and the rest of the organization. And uh, and I was told, like, senior leaders would be present, right? Because I said, I said, if, if leaders aren't on board, I can't do my work. And I don't go in an organization. That's one of my key criteria and filters. I'll ask, you know, usually it's HR directors or CEOs who kind of bring me in, who used to bring me in. And, um, and I'd say, cool, is leadership on board? Like, are we going to get the founder, the CEO, or whoever? If the answer is no, then I'm not, it's not, I'm like, very, very politely, decline the offer to come and work with them because it does not work if you don't if you don't have leadership bought into this idea that you're trying to uh, the seed you're trying to plant to help this organization grow from themselves it's not working so anyway so they tell me yeah leadership's going to be present cool i do my presentation guess what not a single leader showed up and so i'm there standing in the fire right and like they are all i don't know how swear i can do but cheesed off right yeah um and i open up for q a which is my favorite part um, by far. And uh, they say, look around it. Do you see any senior leadership? And I go, no. And like, so how do you think that makes us feel? I'm like, I get it. And you have the right to be angry and frustrated, right? Like it, 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 this, this is one of the systematic issues that you're facing. So question is, what are you going to do about it? Because one of the biggest issues I see from both sides, right? Employee management leadership doesn't matter. It's the blame game. It's not my fault. It's not up to me. And when we fall into that trap of blame game, nothing changes. Whereas if you shift to personal responsibility for everything, there's a concept from Jocko Willings called extreme ownership, which is the idea that everything's on your shoulders and it's up to you. It doesn't matter, it's not because it's not your fault that it doesn't impact you or that you don't have an ability to affect change. And so you go with that mentality of, okay, so no one's showing up. So we're going to do about it. We're going to complain, kick our feet and cross our arms, or are we going to start requiring requesting and demanding that a leadership show up. And if they don't, then whatever, you know, so these are just the conversations that I, I love having and sparking and then get, you know, a bit of a revolution internally and then get out. People aren't stupid. People know that if it's a process item on the annual agenda, or yeah. if it's something that comes from the heart, from the top people say, actually, we do really care and we want this to happen and we're with you. Something like that, you can tell night and day when yeah. they say, oh, we'll be yeah. there as leaders. Is it genuine or is it ticking a box? Exactly. So tell me, you have this sort of realization that for a young guy, you've got everything that you could possibly want, the driver, the house, the flat, Cypress, your parents are over and actually you're thinking, I'm not that happy. What was the turning point for you? What was that final step where you said, right, I'm going to go into entrepreneurship? And yeah. what were your thoughts about it? So yeah, so there are a few steps. I mean, the, the, the one that really, uh, you know, I was in Peru at the time, and I found out that my grandfather had terminal cancer. And I just thought, life's too short. I'd been, I'd been living abroad for, I think, two years and something like that. We, and my holidays were just coming back home. I didn't go to something tropical amazing because that the, our lifestyle was just ridiculous. So 
I, I realized I was far away from my family. I missed my family and I, needed, and I wanted to go home. So I came, I came back to Europe um, and, and I kind of was trying to find my way. I, I started a company with a friend called Mr. Taylor. It, it was kind of a project to try and sell online tailored suits for men and shirts. And this is back in 2009. Um, I've got another story for another time about how we ended up in the Wall Street Journal's Global Asia and US edition. Uh, but that's another story. Um, and um, and ended up working at INSEAD because we're running out of money. It's a business school, one of the top five graduate business schools in the world. Uh, and through that process, I discovered social entrepreneurship. Social entrepreneurship was the concept of you use business principles to foster social change and transformation. And I thought, this is amazing. I can use all the business, all the evil stuff that I've learned from you know my corporate career, uh, sales and all my business background, my marketing background, all that stuff. And I can actually use it for good. Like, this is amazing. What, what kind of stuff is there? And then, anyway, long story short, um, discovered uh, Movember, which is uh, a men's health uh, charity, which is amazing. They're doing great stuff. And all my friends kept on telling me, why don't you go and work for Movember? I mean, you love them. You keep on raising funds for them and you talk about them all the time and you look ridiculous with a moustache. And you, you know, my mate said, um, the two things that happen in November, I, I, I get a cold and I block Mark from Facebook. That was like his famous, uh, famous quote because I kept on fundraising, right? And so, I did a, I did a, I knew that I needed to do something like, uh, you know, as someone who's, who's, who's dyslexic and, and who's always had to find a way to navigate the world environment around me, conventional CVs were never going to be my thing. Like I, I'm not going to stand out. I always thought conventional written CVs were ridiculous. Like how am I supposed to, to, to encapsulate who I am, the personality I bring, you know, all that stuff in a sheet of paper. No one were doing video CVs back then. It's very weird to th- imagine this now. It's a bit like if I told you, um, I don't know. No one had a YouTube channel. You know, it, 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 no one were doing. It. I think there maybe one person had done it. And when I started pitching the idea to my friends and family, everybody was making fun of me. Everyone was like, "What? What? You're going to do what? You're going to stare at a screen, look awkwardly, and tell about what you do? What, what's the, you know, what's the matter with you?" But two of my closest friends, um, Dennis Duvochel and Mickey Mayo, both were like, "Cool, we'll help you out." So Dennis helped me build a website. I think it's still live. It's called a dream job would be nice.com. <laughs> and uh, Mike uh, filmed and edited the film. And so I wrote the script, but I went through this whole process of, again, imposter syndrome, insecurity, perfectionism. It, it just it kept on, kept on delaying it, delaying it, delaying it until my mate said, look, if we don't film it, this is never going to happen. And so I borrowed the keys of the office where I was working at, which I really recommend no one to do because it's a terrible, terrible idea. And uh, we filmed over the weekend. I did the video TV over a couple of weekends. And uh, we put it live on YouTube without really any expectations. And then it kind of went viral. And uh, to the point where people were coming into my open space office at work and saying, oh my God, Mark, we, I just saw your video. And I'd be like, I'm making the sign in my hand of like, stop, you know, be quiet, be quiet what you're doing. Um, and it worked. And that video through a tweet to Adam Garoni, the, the then CEO and co-founder of Movember, uh, invited me to London. I got the job on the spot to launch Movember across Europe and, and become country manager of, of France and Switzerland, Belgium and Spain. Uh, shook, a, shook, shook, a, shook a hand and that was it. Quit, quit my job at business school, took my mom to Australia for a 60th uh, as a pilgrim also to, for moustache um, and joined November and I raised 2.8 million euros for men's health, won a bunch of awards. I've got 110,000 people sign up. But more than that, it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life for sure because talk about you know doing, doing work that has meaning and purpose with, with an incredible team of highly talented, caring uh, smart individuals. It was unbelievable. And so the way that I explain it to people is I've always had it, always had something inside me that I wanted to create or, or do. When I was a kid, um, I, I used to, you know, sell secondhand skateboarding gear, trade stuff. Like I always wanted to, to do something. 
And um, and the thing about November is one of these things where I could see myself spending another five, 10 years easily in my career because it was just so incredible work. But the metaphor I use, it's a little bit like if you hang out with your older brother, who's really cool. And, uh, and, and one point you've got to break away and make your own friends. You've got to go and do your own thing. If I was ever going to do my own little river, my own little impact, like I had, had to break off. And so I did. And I, and I left in 2016, um, thinking it was going to be so easy and I was going to smash in. I was going to make like a million pounds in my first year. Um, and, uh, you know, little I know about the reality of business. I had a mortgage. <laughs> I, I like realized the money was running out. It was just terrible. But, uh, but yes, it's been four years now. Yeah, four years, four years of this uh, amazing, challenging, superb roller coaster ride of, of growing a business. And you started the Unconventionalist. Yes, yes, okay. the Unconventionalist. That was it. And, and funny enough, yeah, it, was, it started as a podcast in 2015. Uh, if you go back to episode one, which is why, you know, you've, you've taken the online video course now, but it's, yeah. it's it, I, I talk about this and it's a true story. When I launched in 2015, I had no idea. Like I made all the mistakes. Everything I teach on my program is what not to do, right? And, and how to actually succeed. Um but I, I, the first episode, I say, welcome to the yet to be named podcast. Like I didn't have a name. Um, but what I did have was a bunch of conversations with these amazing individuals. And I kept on thinking there's these two gaps, right? There's, there's the people who want to do something about their mission, their message, and they want to put themselves out there. And then they're the people who we perceive who are doing that, right? Like we put them on a pedestal. We're like, oh my God, they're so amazing. They're, they're all this stuff. And I was having conversation with both of these groups of people. And I knew that they were exactly the same. The only difference was the story they were telling themselves about the fear they were feeling or these insecurities they're feeling. One group was like, I still feel them, but I still do it anyway. The other one was like, oh my God, I'm the only one who feels that. And, and I think that's where the unconventional started, especially around shaping leaders with an important message to put yourself out there. Because I think we need to make positive louder. I really believe that. I think there's, there's enough negativity through the news. I think there's enough people out there who are doing some really questionable, dodgy stuff. And most of the amazing, most you know, big hearted, big leadership, impact driven people, most of them are a little bit afraid of putting themselves in the limelight and putting themselves out there. And I think it's a tragedy because I would hate to know that people who want to go out there and make an impact, go to their grave with their song and song purely because they're afraid of hitting publish on an article or, or, or pressing record on a podcast or, 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 you know, publishing a video, whatever it is. Um, yeah. That was it. I just blacked out. That's when I, when I go off on a tantrum, I kind of black out. <laughs> so what has it done for you then? What's having that podcast? I mean, now it, it's huge, right? You've had 130,000 downloads. Maybe I'm underestimating yeah. even. What has it given you? Ah, but you know, it's interesting because beyond the metrics that like we were top top 14 in the UK podcast last year, in the career categories. Um, yeah. Oh my God, where do I even begin? I think it... Um, I think especially now that I, because I've paused uh, during the last three months because I'm going to kick off season 15 soon, but I paused, so I had a bit of time to reflect and, and, um, and soak it in. I think you've got, you've got, I think there's always different things about launching a podcast that I believe most people may not be thinking about. So you, on the, on the business aspect, obviously it increases your visibility, your network, your, you clarify your message. You can talk about the products and services you sell or offer. Uh, you can get financial sponsorships, you know, so there's all these great stuff. Like, and, and it's, I think it's one of the most powerful ways to connect to the hearts and ears of your ideal audience, because it's very strange when I get to work with people or people who work with me or join my programs, They'll say, I feel like I know you because I've been listening to you, you know, for like hours. And, and, and I, and I, you know, we, have, we haven't met outside of this context, but um, one of the things I always say to people is the easiest way to enjoy business and life is just be yourself. So whether you're on a podcast or whether you're on stage, whether you're with a client, whether you're writing a blog, whether you're with your, just, just be yourself. 
felt because it's just so much more easy. It's just easier. And so I just, I just, uh, I think that podcasting for most people is one of the easiest mediums to broadcast because if you're really shy in front of the camera, you don't need to film yourself, right? You can just speak into a microphone alone in your cupboard with a blanket over your head. Um, or if you want to use video, you can, and it's democratized so much in terms of broadcasting your message and connecting to a small audience and, and, and et cetera. So that's like on the business side. But then on the, on the personal side, it's given me a quest. It gave me a, a, like, it was, you know, I remember I recorded an episode. I got quite emotional about this. I remember because I realized when I was recording it, that the podcast was the one thing that kept me going throughout everything through when I broke up with my ex-girlfriend, when I quit my job to start my business, when I was struggling, building my business, getting my first highs and lows, TEDx, all of that. My podcast was there and it was a cathartic method of just processing what was happening. So I would, I would talk about my journey, you know, trying to be as honest as I could. And so it became a real um, creative outlet for me. And I've missed it. I've really missed it over the last three months. And I can say that now because I didn't really realize it when I was in the middle of it. And maybe you can speak to that, you know, now that you're starting season two and you finish season one, there's this, this, and, and there's something, and this is the selfish reason why I think podcast is amazing, especially if you're going to go for a podcast around interviewing people such as yourself. Yeah. Super selfish reason. I love people. I love stories. And I think that every single time I speak to someone, it's impossible for me not to have a little bit uh, of an ability to steal a little part of their soul, a little part of their, their wisdom, their, their heart, their, their, their whatever it is. And I grow, you know, and, and it's made me so much more humble. It's made me so much more appreciative of, uh, of everyone's journeys that we make so many assumptions about, you know, someone, you know, I've had people cry on my show. I've had people talk about, you know, really difficult terminal illnesses that they never talked about sexual orientations. You know, I've had all these things and it just reminds me never, never think you, you have every, anyone figured out because we don't. Right. And, and, and uh, we are all the same. I know this sounds so weird, but we ultimately, we want the same thing. It's always say this, we want to be loved, heard and, uh, and, uh, supported loved and heard something like that yeah just i just blacked that again but it, it, yeah. we all have that it doesn't matter yeah. who you are and I've, I've spoken to people with millions of followers 10 followers doesn't matter we're the same which by the way uh, uh true story all our ancestors we go back to that one person right so we are all distant 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 cousins all the humanity we all have the same relative when we go back 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 all the way so just remember that we're all just one big family i agree and i think when you're able to discuss something unconventional with someone who is being seen as a leader or seen yeah. in a certain light and you're actually able to break them down to the human that people get yes. to see yes. then suddenly you realize well actually i didn't know that you went through this process i yes. didn't know that i could relate to you like this and yes and there are multiple connections that just breaking down the barriers of someone who has to have that sort of presence in a professional environment it humanizes them 100%. And, 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 you know, it's really interesting. Um, I, I think, I don't know if you remember this from, from the course online, I shared the story about Larry King. Don't know if there's a ring of the yes. bell. Yeah. But basically, just really quickly, because I think this is super important for people to understand. So Larry King uh, had a dream of being a broadcaster and going to radio for a long time, but he, he got in quite late, if, if I'm not mistaken, but he got in quite late. Like, for those who don't know, Larry King's an interview. He's had like thousands of interviews right throughout mm -hmm. life, and he's interviewed everyone that you could possibly imagine. And he's got a very distinctive voice and also also kind of feature. Um, and uh, and same, he gets a job at this radio station, right? Like the, one of these local radio stations. And he shows up and his real name is something long. I forgot what his real name is. It, 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 it's, it sounds Eastern European and it, it, it's kind of long, right? Um, 
And he gets in and, his, and the radio manager station producer, whatever they're called, basically says to him when he walks in, like, cool, good morning, Larry. So what are you going to call yourself? And you know, he says his full name. And he goes, no, 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 that's, that's too ethnic. That's too something like Eastern European. He says, like, we're going, to get, we're going to find something else. He looks on the floor and he sees um, a catalog of beds and like King mattress. And he goes, King, Larry King. We're going to call you Larry King. So Larry King's like, oh, okay, I guess Larry King it is then. <laughs> so he goes into the radio station. He was going to kick off at 7 a.m. And for those, I, I, I did a bit of radio at university. For those of you who don't know, there's like a, a national broadcast radio that any channel can just plug into if you've got no shows going on. And it just like plays around. And then when you're ready to have your show, you kind of fade out of that music and fade in your microphone, right? And then you kick off your show. And then whenever you're ready, you can you can switch back off. And so he gets in at seven, you know, 6.59, and he gets ready to, to sort of fade out the national kind of broadcast radio and puts on his show, panics, reverse back and kind of steps oops, steps back from the control unit. The door gets smashed in. It's the, you know, the, the boss comes in, what are you doing, Larry? You know, this is a broadcasting channel, so stop broadcasting. And Kenny goes, oh, okay. So he puts his headphone and he puts the microphone back on and, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, you know, good morning. Uh, my name is Larry King. I changed my name just a second ago and this is my first time on radio. So please bear with me. And in that moment, he understood the power of connection, which is vulnerable honesty. And, and, and that's what I wish more people could understand, that when you're at your most vulnerable in, 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 in any context, that's when you become magnetic. Now, there's the flip side. Don't become vulnerable for the sake of trying to manufacture connection. But what I've seen over and over again is when people really connect to that thing that makes them then and you know part of the impact accelerator one of the things we focus on is your origin story which is often where the goal mine lies in terms of what you've never shared with anybody but actually explains why you do what you do or, or why you believe in, in what you believe in the world um it's super powerful like it, it really is because then suddenly you you don't have to compete with anybody else you, you you know it's easy to cut through the noise it's easy to polarize whether you repel or or, or attract um and I think, and I think we neglect that part of us. I think as leaders and 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 in our community, I think we neglect neglect it. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. But I also think that you know, through the process of, especially you know, decades past, through the process of building your career, you create that facade. So it's hard yes. for certain leaders to understand. Yes. Actually, if if I suddenly break myself down to yeah, get yeah. to the purpose of why I'm doing this in the first place, yes. there's an element of Okay, am I going to open up too much? Yes. Are they going to respect me enough? You know, is this persona that I've created for myself yeah. going to slip because mm. I've suddenly become more human? Yeah, and what you speak to is about control. Like the under element of what you're speaking about is about control and the fear of leaders that we have around letting go of control. Uh, and going back to that story I shared about, uh, I was afraid you were going to talk about their feelings. We just don't have time for that. What she was really afraid is of letting go of control and what would come out. Because, you know, when I'd go around organizations and speaking with, with each other, they're like, oh, yeah, we don't want you to get them to talk about their feelings or problems because once you open up that can of worms, it's never going to shut down. And I, and I just thought, why? And for me, I, you know, that book, It's Not You, It's Me, by the way, just real, I know we've got a couple of minutes, but it came off of the blog post. I wrote a blog post in 2011, I think it was, around how I realized that looking for a job while being employed was like trying to look for a new partner while still dating or being in a relationship, right? And I made these jokes about, I'd pick up the phone and, and pretend it was someone else. I, I would delete my emails. I'd pretend like I was going on holiday, but I was going for job interviews. And I got a really good response. And that blog post eventually became the book. But I always talk about relationships as a metaphor to understand work, right? And, and, and it's, it's the same thing. 
imagine you were in a relationship and uh, and you're like, I don't want to talk about the problems. I don't want to talk about what's not going right. I just let's focus on the objective. It's getting married, getting kids, whatever it is, uh, whatever the objective is, right? Like, let's just focus on that. Are we looking good as a couple? Are we, you know, instead of going, hey, I'm, I'm not that happy. I, I need this, you know, what I, I need less of that, whatever. Same thing with the workplace. If people could actually, you know what? The one big takeaway that people can listen to this, if you could treat your your work relationships the same way that you would treat your... Now, there's there's a caveat to this. I was going to say to your personal relationship, not about physical contact or, or, or meeting in any kind of way, but really just about... The, I wish we had another hour here because there's so much more we'd like to say. That, that, <laughs> no, I, feel, I feel like, so don't worry about it. You can come back on. <laughs> but listen, listen to this out, right? 50% of the longest running organizations in the world and the companies are Japanese, 50%, right? Uh, and that's because in Japan, they have a philosophy, like the family business a philosophy. They, some businesses actually can adopt some of their employees as their own kids because they've been in the company for so long. But the idea is if your kid came back from school with a bad report, if your kid made a mistake, would you punish them and, and fire them from your family? Or would you try to understand what happened and try and fix it? Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't sometimes let go people. It's a perfectly healthy, natural, good thing sometimes. But I think we're very quick to uh, to not take responsibility for how can we make this better, human better, right? Like if, if, if the one thing I would love for organizations, leaders to take away is what if your one job was to make sure that the people who work for you leave a better version of who they were when they arrived? And if you're an employee, what if you left the organization you work for in a better place than when you arrived? And that stems from the book uh, Legacy on um, on the All Blacks, where they have this idea around leave the jersey in a better place than when you found it. And I, I wished everybody could adopt that mentality because it would be a game changer. Mark, we're getting towards the end of the podcast. I have some quick fire round questions for you. Yes. They're lights. Go for it. What languages do you speak? Uh, so fluent French, English, and I have a good understanding of Spanish. It's a bit rusty, but after a few beers, I can, I can have a, a conversation in Spanish. And, and I know how to order a beer in Russian. The important stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, oh my God. Uh, best piece I ever received. Um, yeah, so, I think it's going to, well, actually, I, I know what it is. Well, it's not, maybe not the best advice I've ever had, but, you know, as a parent now of two young kids, it was someone who saw when, uh, when my partner was pregnant um, with our first, first child, she said to us, um, be kind to yourselves. Like I wished, I wish I was kinder to myself as a parent. And that really has helped. It's really helped because it's, you know, I think that's anyone, anyone listening, just be kinder to yourself because we're so quick to be hard on ourselves, beat ourselves up. We should be shooting all over ourselves, you know, as I say, it's, it's um, yeah, be kind, be kind to yourself. Okay. Be kind. Best age so far. Best age so far. Oh my God. Um, well, I mean, I, I, you know, I had an amazing time. Do, do you mean like when, how, what was my best year when I, when the I was like 27? you've enjoyed the most so Oh far. yeah, yeah, okay, okay, okay. Um, oh, well, loads. I mean, I, I loved university, were, were incredible years. Um, my years on, on the field when I was working for that company, being abroad, amazing, even though it was, you know, um, and obviously I've got, I mean, I've got to say, uh, yeah. And I know it sounds so cliche and stuff, but when my, when my daughter was born, that, that moment is one of the most magical moments of my entire life. And I, I can't, you know, my son was the same and it, it's very difficult to top an experience like that, to be honest. Yeah, I can imagine. Ask permission or beg forgiveness. I'm more of a, 
beg for, <laughs> beg for forgiveness. Um, depend, depend, depending on depending on the situation and the circumstance, I just want to put it out there. Um, but uh, usually, in, in especially in, in business and stuff, I, I kind of go for the for the latter. The beg forgiveness. Your, I mean, we've spoken about your mission, but your mission in life is uh, to normalize human condition. And Mark, finally, what has being so driven given you? What has being so driven given me? Ah, oh, funny you say that. I think it's um, it's a double-edged sword. What, what what it has given me is is um, an ability to push through, and realizing this now, especially now, you know, push on through what I thought was obvious or non-negotiable, where other people stop. Um, I, th I think it's just that unshakable ability to just keep showing up, keep 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 doing. And I think you know it's funny. That's why I did. I was quite quite good at CrossFit because all that kind of sport. Because I, I have this ability to to make. I hate running. I'm a terrible runner. I don't do endurance. Uh, but when you mix both, when you have the men the mentality of I was talking to my brother about this, pushing myself is something that I realized that it's it's a mental thing. And because I struggled a lot, I had lots of stuff going on for me as a kid growing up, tangible, this stuff, it shaped who I am. It, it's driven me to, I still feel like I have to prove myself that I'm worthy of love, right? And and so that pushes still drives me to be a a, a type high achiever. Um, but I don't quit. Like I don't quit when, when it matters. I love that. And Mark, I can definitely see why people resonate with you. You know, you come across very honest and there's a level of vulnerability. And all through this conversation, I'm like, yes, I can totally relate to that. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I know you're hugely busy, especially in September, but um, it's been a pleasure. Absolutely. My, my treat. Thank you. Mark starts the conversation talking about public speaking. Um, so I've since learnt from Wikipedia, it's called glostrophobia. It's actually in some studies, only second fear to death. So it just shows how we as humans really, really hate that notion of being outside of the pack and being judged. So if that's something that you either have to do and you dread or you want to be good at it, but you struggle to push yourself through the pain barrier of fear, then take this advice from Mark. Stop thinking about it's all about you and start being the spotlight. It's about the people you're trying to serve. It's about being the spotlight and being the vessel to shine a light on the cause or purpose that you're wanting to highlight. As soon as you start seeing it like that, your mind shifts and it becomes so much easier to address the fear. So a new one on me during our conversation was this idea of psychological safety used in our chats in relation to employees in the corporate world. Through Mark's experience and study, high-performing teams have pretty high levels of psychological safety. What that really looks like in its own environment is that it's okay to fail. It's okay to raise your hand and ask for help. Or it's okay for someone to just to say, I don't know, without all the repercussions of humiliation or retaliation. So I invite you to consider if you are employed or a leader of a team, are you working or creating an environment that has psychological safety? And if not, what changes can you make to make that happen? And I talk to both leaders and employees there because as much as there's direction that comes from the top, delivery is company-wide and everyone has a part to play. 
Mark also talks about the real lack, and I can honestly say I can speak from personal experience about this, but that sort of real lack in organisations of a clear sense of purpose. Organisations really don't know yet how to connect their employees' work to meaning. It doesn't matter how great your career sounds to the younger you, to your friends, to your family. If you don't have that deep understanding of purpose, a strong sense of belonging and and true meaning within your job, you're just not going to get excited by your work, period. I mean, the inertia of being in the job that you've always wanted will only take you so far. But to get to that point where you want to take your career to that next level, you have to understand what your purpose is. You have to, as a company, be able to create purpose within the environment so that people know why they're waking up every single day aside from the paycheck. So following that, no matter what your position is in your business, you just must be aware of the blame game. You know, whether you are a leader, whether you are an employee or an employer, that blame game trap just leaves you in a pit of stagnation and changes absolutely nothing. If you are able to shift your mind, no matter where you sit in a company, and take personal responsibility of everything that goes on, you will start to see change happen. And that is so important, not only for the business, but for your personal growth in your career as well. You know, I really love that story that Mark tells about Larry King and his levels of vulnerability. You know, we all need to be supported, loved and heard. And deep down, we are pretty much all the same. We need to have that power of connection. So just remember when you are having one of those moments of leadership crisis, crises, that, you know, we are all the same. People do relate to that vulnerable side. And if you can push past the hard wall external facade that you might have built up for yourself, you might find that you get a different response from people who are working with you. And finally, I'm going to leave you with the all blacks mentality of leave the jersey in a better place than when you found it. That's it from me. Keep showing up, everyone. That's what I'm here doing, working on this podcast. Thank you to Mark LaRousse, my guests. All show notes and links are going to be on the So Driven podcast website. That's www.serenadod.com forward slash podcast. That's S-E-R-E-N-A-D-O-D-D.com forward slash podcast. Well, that's the first episode of the second series. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and leave an honest review. I have loved doing the first series and I'm extremely excited to be sharing this next series with you. So please help me and raise my profile on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, rate, review, and then head over to my podcast website and let me know that you've done that by clicking the Ask Serena button. If you do that and email me, each week I'll select a person to sit down with me, have a full hour session, one-to-one, to help you get your 90-day goals underway. So my method is straightforward, it's direct. You can get all you need in our hour to focus and have the know-how to complete your goals in those 90 days. So head on over to serenadod.com forward slash podcast, click the Ask Serena button, and then let me know that you have reviewed the podcast. So that's it from me today. As always, I hope you are taking lead of your day and making it so driven. (laughs) 